Part three of Lady Byron Vindicated A History of the Byron Controversy by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Here included are miscellaneous documents, section one being the true story of Lady Byron's life as originally published in the Atlantic Monthly. Part one of three the reading world of america has lately been presented with a book the life of lord byron in italy which is said to sell rapidly and which appears to meet with universal favour the subject of the book may be thus briefly stated the mistress of lord byron comes before the world for the sake of vindicating his fame from slanders and aspersions cast on him by his wife the story of the mistress versus the wife may be summed up as follows lord byron the hero of the story is represented as a human being endowed with every natural charm gift and grace who by the one false step of an unsuitable marriage wrecked his whole life a narrow-minded cold-hearted precisian without sufficient intellect to comprehend his genius or heart to feel for his temptations formed with him one of those mere worldly marriages common in high life and finding that she could not reduce him to the mathematical properties and conventional rules of her own mode of life suddenly and without warning abandoned him in the most cruel and inexplicable manner it is alleged that she parted from him in apparent affection and good humour wrote him a playful confiding letter upon the way but after reaching her father's house suddenly and without explanation announced to him that she would never see him again that this sudden abandonment drew down upon him a perfect storm of scandalous stories which his wife never contradicted that she never in any way or shape stated what the exact reasons for her departure had been and thus silently gave scope to all the malice of thousands of enemies the sensitive victim was actually driven from england his home broken up and he doomed to be a lonely wanderer on foreign shores in italy under bluer skies and among gentler people with more tolerant modes of judgment the authoress intimates that he found peace and consolation a lovely young italian countess falls in love with him and breaking her family ties for his sake devotes herself to him and in blissful retirement with her he finds at last that domestic life for which he was so fitted soothed calmed and refreshed he writes don juan which the world is at this late hour informed was a poem with a high moral purpose designed to be a practical illustration of the doctrine of total depravity among young gentlemen in high life under the elevating influence of love he rises at last to higher realms of moral excellence and resolves to devote the rest of his life to some noble and heroic purpose becomes the saviour of greece and dies untimely leaving a nation to mourn his loss the authoress dwells with a peculiar bitterness on lady byron's entire silence during all these years as the most aggravated form of persecution and injury she informs the world that lord byron wrote his autobiography with the purpose of giving a fair statement of the exact truth in the whole matter and that lady byron bought up the manuscript of the publisher and insisted on its being destroyed unread thus inflexibly depriving her husband of his last chance of a hearing before the tribunal of the public 
as a result of this silent persistent cruelty on the part of a cold correct narrow-minded woman the character of lord byron has been misunderstood and his name transmitted to after ages clouded with aspersions and accusations which it is the object of this book to remove such is the story of lord byron's mistress a story which is going the length of this american continent and rousing up new sympathy with the poet and doing its best to bring the youth of america once more under the power of that brilliant seductive genius from which it was hoped they had escaped already we are seeing it revamped in magazine articles which take up the slanders of the paramour and enlarge on them and wax eloquent in denunciation of the marble-hearted insensible wife all this while it does not appear to occur to the thousands of unreflecting readers that they are listening merely to the story of lord byron's mistress and of lord byron and that even by their own showing their heaviest accusations against lady byron is that she has not spoken at all her story has never been told for many years after the rupture between lord byron and his wife that poet's personality fate and happiness had an interest for the whole civilized world which we will venture to say was unparalleled it is within the writer's recollection how in the obscure mountain town where she spent her early days lord byron's separation from his wife was for a season the all-engrossing topic she remembers hearing her father recount at the breakfast-table the facts as they were given in the public papers together with his own suppositions and theories of the causes lord byron's fare thee well addressed to lady byron was set to music and sung with tears by young schoolgirls even in this distant america madame de stal said of this appeal that she was sure it would have drawn her at once to his heart and his arms she could have forgiven everything and so said all the young ladies all over the world not only in england but in france and germany wherever byron's poetry appeared in translation lady byron's obdurate cold-heartedness in refusing even to listen to his prayers or to have any intercourse with him which might lead to reconciliation was the one point conceded on all sides the stricter moralists defended her but gentler hearts throughout all the world regarded her as a marble-hearted monster of correctness and morality a personification of the law unmitigated by the gospel literature in its highest walks busied itself with lady byron wilson in the character of the ettrick shepherd devotes several eloquent passages to expatiating on the conjugal fidelity of a poor highland shepherd's wife who by patience and prayer and forgiveness succeeds in reclaiming her drunken husband and making a good man of him and then paints his moral by contrasting with this touching picture the cold-hearted pharisaical correctness of lady byron more in his life of lord byron when beginning the recital of the series of disgraceful amours which formed the staple of his life in venice has this passage quote, highly censurable in point of morality and decorum as was his course of life while under the roof of madame blank 
it was with pain i am forced to confess venial in comparison with the strange headlong career of license to which when weaned from that connection he so unrestrainedly and it may be added defyingly abandoned himself of the state of his mind on leaving england i have already endeavoured to convey some idea and among the feelings that went to make up that self-centred spirit of resistance which he then opposed to his fate was an indignant scorn for his own countrymen for the wrongs he thought they had done him for a time the kindly sentiments which he still harboured toward lady byron and a sort of vague hope perhaps that all would yet come right again kept his mind in a mood and somewhat more softened and docile as well as sufficiently under the influence of english opinions to prevent his breaking out into open rebellion against it as he unluckily did afterwards by the failure of the attempted mediation with lady byron his last link with home was severed while notwithstanding the quiet and unobtrusive life which he led at geneva there was as yet he found no cessation of the slanderous warfare against his character the same busy and misrepresenting spirit which had tracked his every step at home having with no less malicious watchfulness dogged him into exile we should like to know what the misrepresentations and slanders must have been when this sort of thing is admitted in mr mood's justification it seems to us rather wonderful how anybody unless it were a person like the countess guiccioli could misrepresent a life such as even byron's friends admits he was leading during all these years when he was setting at defiance every principle of morality and decorum the interest of the female mind all over europe in the conversation of this brilliant prodigal son was unceasing and reflects the greatest credit upon the faith of the sex madame de stal commenced the first effort at evangelization immediately after he left england and found her catechumen in a most edifying state of humility he was metaphorically on his knees in penitence and confessed himself a miserable sinner in the loveliest manner possible such sweetness and humility took all hearts his conversations with madame de stal were printed and circulated all over the world making it appear that only the inflexibility of lady byron stood in the way of his entire conversion lady blessington among many others took him in hand five or six years afterward and was greatly delighted with his docility and edified by his frank and free confessions of his miserable offences nothing now seemed wanting to bring the wanderer home to the fold but a kind word from lady byron but when the fair countess offered to mediate the poet only shook his head in tragic despair Quote, he had so many times tried in vain lady byron's course had been from the first that of obdurate silence any one who would wish to see a specimen of the skill of the honourable poet in mystification will do well to read a letter to lady byron which lord byron on parting from lady blessington enclosed for her to read just before he went to greece he says quote, the letter which i enclose i was prevented from sending by my despair of its doing any good i was perfectly sincere when i wrote it and am so still but it is difficult for me to withstand the thousand provocations on that subject 
which both friends and foes have for seven years been throwing in the way of a man whose feelings were once quick and whose temper was never patient to lady byron care of the honourable mrs lee london pisa november seventeenth eighteen twenty one i have to acknowledge the receipt of ida's hair which is very soft and pretty and nearly as dark already as mine was at twelve years old if i may judge from what i recollect of some in augusta's possession taken at that age but it don't curl perhaps from its being let grow i also thank you for the inscription of the date and name and i will tell you why i believe that there are only two or three words of your handwriting in my possession for your letters i returned and except the two words or rather one word household written twice in an old account book i have no other i burnt your last note for two reasons firstly it was written in a style not very agreeable and secondly i wished to take your word without documents which are the worldly resources of suspicious people i suppose that this note will reach you somewhere about ada's birthday the tenth of december i believe she will then be six so that in about twelve more i shall have some chance of meeting her perhaps sooner if i am obliged to go to england by business or otherwise recollect however one thing either in distance or nearness every day which keeps us asunder should after so long a period rather soften our mutual feelings which must always have one rallying point as long as our child exists to which i presume we both hope will be long after either of her parents the time which has elapsed since the separation has been considerably more than the whole brief period of our union and the not much longer one of our prior acquaintance we both made a bitter mistake and now it is over and irrevocably so for at thirty-three on my part and a few years less on yours though it is no very extended period of life still it is one when the habits and thoughts are generally so formed as to admit of no modification and as we could not agree when younger we should with difficulty do so now i say all this because i own to you that notwithstanding everything i considered our reunion as not impossible for more than a year after the separation but then i gave up the hope entirely and for ever but this very impossibility of reunion seems to me at least a reason why on all the few points of discussion which can arise between us we should preserve the courtesies of life and as much of its kindness as people who are never to meet may preserve perhaps more easily than nearer connections for my own part i am violent but not malignant for only fresh provocations can awaken my resentments to you who are colder and more concentrated i would just hint that you may sometimes mistake the depth of a cold anger for dignity and a worse feeling for duty i assure you that i bear you now whatever i may have done no resentment whatever remember that if you have injured me in aught this forgiveness is something and that if i have injured you it is something more still if it be true as the moralists say that the most offending are the least forgiving whether the offence has been solely on my side or reciprocal or on yours chiefly i have ceased to reflect upon any but two things viz that you are the mother of my child and that we shall never meet again 
i think if you also consider the two corresponding points with reference to myself it will be better for all three yours ever noel byron the artless thomas moore introduces this letter in the life with the remark quote, there are few i should think of my readers who will not agree with me in pronouncing that if the author of the following letter had not right on his side he had at least most of those good feelings which are found in general to accompany it the reader is requested to take notice of the important admission that the letter was never sent to lady byron at all it was in fact never intended for her but was a nice little dramatic performance composed simply with the view of acting on the sympathies of lady blessington and byron's numerous female admirers and the reader will agree with us we think that in this point of view it was very neatly done and deserves immortality as a work of high art for six years he has been plunging into every kind of vice and excess pleading his shattered domestic joys and his wife's obdurate heart as the apology and the impelling cause filling the air with his shrieks and complaints concerning the slanders which pursued him while he filled letters to his confidential correspondence with records of new mistresses during all these years the silence of lady byron was unbroken though lord byron not only drew in private on the sympathies of his female admirers but employed his talents and position as an author in holding her up to contempt and ridicule before thousands of readers we shall quote at length his side of the story which he published in the first canto of don juan that the reader may see how much reason he had for assuming the injured tone which he did in the letter to lady byron quoted above that letter was never sent to her and the unmanly and indecent caricature of her and the indelicate exposure of the whole story on his own side which we are about to quote were the only communications that could have reached her solitude in the following verses lady byron is represented as donna inez and lord byron as don jose but the incidents and allusions were so very pointed that nobody for a moment doubted whose history the poet was narrating so now an excerpt from don juan his mother was a learned lady famed for every branch of science known in every christian language ever named with virtues equalled by her wit alone she made the cleverest people quite ashamed and even the good with inward envy groaned finding themselves so very much exceeded in their own way by all the things that she did her favorite science was the mathematical her noblest virtue was her magnanimity her wit she sometimes tried at wit was attic all her serious sayings darkened to sublimity in short in all things she was fairly what i call a prodigy her morning dress was dimity her evening silk or in the summer muslin and other stuffs with which i won't stay puzzling some women used their tongues she looked a lecture each eye a sermon and her brow a homily and all in all sufficient self-director like the lamented late sir samuel romilly 
in short she was a walking calculation miss edgeworth's novels stepping from their covers or mrs trimucer's books on education or colab's wife set out in quest of lovers morality's prim personification in which not envy's self a flaw discovers to others share let female errors fall for she had not even one the worst of all oh she was perfect past all parallel of any modern female saint's comparison so far above the cunning powers of hell her guardian angel had given up his garrison even her minutest motions went as well as those of the best timepiece made by harrison in virtues nothing earthly could surpass her save thine incomparable oil macassar perfect she was but as perfection is insipid in this naughty world of ours don jose like a lineal son of eve went plucking various fruits without her leave he was a mortal of the careless kind with no great love for learning or the learned who chose to go where'er he had a mind and never dreamed his lady was concerned the world as usual wickedly inclined to see a kingdom or a house or turned whispered he had a mistress some said too but for domestic quarrels one will do now donna inez had with all her merit a great opinion of her own good qualities neglect indeed requires a saint to bear it and such indeed she was in her moralities but then she had a devil of a spirit and sometimes mixed up fancies with realities and let few opportunities escape of getting her liege lord into a scrape this was an easy matter with a man oft in the wrong and never on his guard and even the wisest do the best they can have moments hours and days so unprepared that you might brain them with their lady's fan and sometimes ladies hit exceeding hard and fans turn into falchions in fair hands and why and wherefore no one understands tis a pity learned virgins ever wed with persons of no sort of education or gentlemen who though well born and bred grow tired of scientific conversation i don't choose to say much upon this head i am a plain man and in a single station but o oh, ye lords of ladies intellectual inform us truly have they not henpecked you all don jose and donna inez led for some time an unhappy sort of life wishing each other not divorced but dead they lived respectably as man and wife their conduct was exceedingly well-bred and gave no outward sign of inward strife until at length the smothered fire broke out and put the business past all kind of doubt for inez called some druggists and physicians and tried to prove her loving lord was mad but as he had some lucid intermissions she next decided he was only bad yet when they asked her for her depositions no sort of explanation could be had save that her duty both to man and god required this conduct which seemed very odd she kept a journal where his faults were noted and opened certain trunks of books and letters all which might if occasion served be quoted and then she had all seville for abettors besides her good old grandmother who doted 
the hearers of her case became repeaters then advocates inquisitors and judges some for amusement others for old grudges and then this best and meekest woman bore with such serenity her husband's woes just as the spartan ladies did of yore who saw their spouses killed and nobly chose never to say a word about them more calmly she heard each calumny that rose and saw his agonies with such sublimity that all the world exclaimed what magnanimity End of excerpt this is the longest and most elaborate version of his own story that byron ever published but he busied himself with many others projecting at one time a spanish romance in which the same story is related in the same transparent manner but this he was dissuaded from printing the booksellers however made a good speculation in publishing what they called his domestic poems that is poems bearing more or less relation to this subject every person with whom he became acquainted with any degree of intimacy was made familiar with his side of the story moore's biography is from first to last in its representations founded upon byron's communicativeness and lady byron's silence and the world at last settled down to believing that the account so often repeated and never contradicted must be substantially a true one the true history of lord and lady byron has long been perfectly understood in many circles in england but the facts were of a nature that could not be made public while there was a young daughter living whose future might be prejudiced by its recital and while there were other persons on whom the disclosure of the real truth would have been crushing as an avalanche lady byron's only course was the perfect silence in which she took refuge and those sublime works of charity and mercy to which she consecrated her blighted earthly life but the time is now come when the truth may be told all the actors in the scene have disappeared from the stage of mortal existence and passed let us have faith to hope into a world of singular concurrence of circumstances all the facts of the case in the most undeniable and authentic form were at one time placed in the hands of the writer of this sketch with authority to make such use of them as she should judge best had this melancholy history been allowed to sleep no public use would have been made of them but the appearance of a popular attack on the character of lady byron calls for a vindication and the true story of her married life will therefore now be related lord byron has described in one of his letters the impression left upon his mind by a young person whom he met one evening in society and who attracted his attention by the simplicity of her dress and a certain air of singular purity and calmness with which she surveyed the scene around her on inquiry he was told that this young person was miss milbank an only child and one of the largest heiresses in england lord byron was fond of idealizing his experiences in poetry and the friends of lady byron had no difficulty in recognizing the portrait of lady byron as she appeared at this time in her life in his exquisite description of aurora rabbi there was indeed a certain fair and fairy one of the best class and better than her class aurora rabbi a young star who shone o'er life too sweet an image for such glass a lovely being scarcely formed or moulded arose with all its sweetest leaves yet folded 
early in years and yet more infantine in figure she had something of sublime in eyes which sadly shone as seraphs shine all youth but with an aspect beyond time radiant and grave as pitying man's decline mournful but mournful of another's crime she looked as if she sat by eden's door and grieved for those who could return no more she gazed upon a world she scarcely knew as seeking not to know silent lone as grows a flower thus quietly she grew and kept her heart serene within its zone there was awe in the homage which she drew her spirit seemed as seated on a throne apart from the surrounding world and strong in its own strength most strange in one so young some idea of the course which their acquaintance took and the manner in which he was piqued into thinking of her is given in a stanza or two quote, the dashing and proud air of adeline imposed not upon her she saw her blaze much as she would have seen a glow-worm shine then turned unto the stars for loftier rays one was something she could not divine being no sibyl in the new world's ways yet she was nothing dazzled by the meteor because she did not pin her faith on feature his fame too for he had that kind of fame which sometimes plays the deuce with womankind a heterogeneous mass of glorious blame half virtues and whole vices being combined faults which attract because they are not tame follies tricked out so brightly that they blind these seals upon her wax made no impression such was her coldness or her self-possession aurora sat with that indifference which piques a prude chevalier as it ought of all offences that's the worst offence which seems to hint you are not worth a thought to his gay nothings nothing was replied or something which was nothing as urbanity required aurora scarcely looked aside nor even smiled enough for any vanity the devil was in the girl could it be pride or modesty or absence or inanity one was drawn thus into some attentions slight but select and just enough to express to females of perspicuous comprehensions that he would rather make them more than less aurora at the last so history mentions though probably much less a fact than guess so far relaxed her thoughts from their sweet prison as once or twice to smile if not to listen but juan had a sort of winning way a proud humility if such there be which showed such deference to what females say as if each charming word were a decree his tact too tempered him from grave to gay and taught him when to be reserved or free he had the art of drawing people out without their seeing what he was about aurora who in her indifference confounded him in common with the crowd of flatterers though she deemed he had more sense than whispering fopplings or than whittlings loud commenced from such slight things will great commence to feel the flattery which attracts the proud rather by deference than compliment and wins even by a delicate descent and then he had good looks that point was carried nem con amongst the women 
now though we know of old that looks deceive and always have done somehow these good looks make more impression than the best of books aurora who looked more on books than faces was very young although so very sage admiring more minerva than the graces especially upon the printed page but virtue's self with all her tightest laces has not the natural stays of strict old age and socrates that model of all duty owned to a penchant though discreet for beauty the presence of this high-minded thoughtful unworldly woman is described through two cantos of the wild rattling don juan in a manner that shows how deeply the poet was capable of being affected by such an appeal to his higher nature for instance when don juan sits silent and thoughtful amid a circle of persons who are talking scandal the poet says quote, tis true he saw aurora look as though she approved his silence she perhaps mistook its motive for that charity we owe but seldom pay the absent he gained esteem where it was worth the most and certainly aurora had renewed in him some feelings he had lately lost or hardened feelings which perhaps ideal are so divine that i must deem them real the love of higher things and better days the unbounded hope and heavenly ignorance of what is called the world and the world's ways the moments when we gather from a glance more joy than from all future pride or praise which kindled manhood but can ne'er entrance the heart is an existence of its own of which another's bosom is the zone and full of sentiments sublime as billows heaving between this world and worlds beyond don juan when the midnight hour of pillows arrived retired to his in all these descriptions of a spiritual unworldly nature acting on the spiritual and unworldly part of his own nature every one who ever knew lady byron intimately must have recognized the model from which he drew and the experience from which he spoke even though nothing was further from his mind than to pay this tribute to the woman he had injured and though before these lines which showed how truly he knew her real character had come one stanza of ribald vulgar caricature designed as a slight to her quote, there was miss millpond smooth as summer's sea that usual paragon an only daughter who seemed else cream of equanimity till skimmed and then there was some milk and water with a slight shade of blue too it might be beneath the surface but what did it matter love's riotous but marriage should have quiet and being consumptive live on a milk diet the result of byron's intimacy with miss milbank and the enkindling of his nobler feelings was an offer of marriage which she though at the time deeply interested in him declined with many expressions of friendship and interest in fact she already loved him but had that doubt of her power to be to him all that wife should be which would be likely to arise in a mind so sensitively constituted and so unworldly 
they however continued a correspondence as friends on her part the interest continually increasing on his the transient rise of better feelings was choked and overgrown by the thorns of base unworthy passions from the height at which he might have been happy as the husband of a noble woman he fell into the depths of a secret adulterous intrigue with a blood relation so near in consanguinity that discovery must have been utter ruin and expulsion from civilized society from henceforth this damning guilty secret became the ruling force in his life holding him with a morbid fascination yet filling him with remorse and anguish and insane dread of detection this ends part three section one miscellaneous documents the true story of lady byron's life part one of three read by michelle fry baton rouge louisiana